welcome to the Stanley Street Social Podcast presented by the TAC. The road belongs to us all. My name is Alex Clements and today on the podcast we've got Irene and Philip from a company called C-Sense. C-Sense are doing a collaboration with the TAC to run a trial within Victoria to help provide insights from cyclists, commuters, athletes back to the TAC to hopefully improve cycling infrastructure and cycling safety throughout Victoria. Irene and Philip will tell you much more about that during this podcast and it's very exciting to have that trial up and running and hopefully see some of the results of that trial from the TAC down the track. A big thank you to our apparel partner, MAP. If you are on Zwift and you want to get involved in their Off The Map Tour, it starts today, the 3rd of August. You can register now. All you need to do is complete all four stages and you will be eligible to have a in-game jersey and also be able to pick up their Zwift Times Map collaboration kit that they're producing as part of this off the road to us. Head to map.cc if you want to check out all the details of that Zwift competition. I hope you enjoy this episode and a big thank you to the TAC and Map for helping support this podcast. Well, guys, thank you very much for staying up so late for finding, and finding time for the Stanley Street Social Podcast. It's great to have you on board as a shared uh, our mutual connection, the TAC, the presenting partner of this podcast and a collaboration that you guys have just kicked off uh, here in Australia. It's great to see your brand being uh, pushed. And it was it was interesting last night just reading about your product and how how your story has come to life. What what was the first the first click, the first interaction for you guys that started off this project of CSense? Yeah, so it was actually, uh, it was about 10 years ago now. And I was a cycle commuter in Singapore and I was working for an investment bank and responsible for a number of client facing systems. And as a busy executive, I didn't have a lot of time to go to the gym and get the exercise that I craved. And so I took up uh, cycling to get a bit of exercise back into my daily routine, uh, commuting to and from work. And I really enjoyed it, but I find that um, commuting in amongst uh, the traffic in Singapore was sometimes challenging. Um, there were some times I didn't always feel completely safe on the bike. There were, you know, elements of close passing and, uh, you know, turning in front of you and all sorts of things that um, I didn't particularly enjoy. And in Singapore, they have a concept called uh, Kiazu as well, which, which translated roughly means fear of losing. And so they all drive not necessarily in an aggressive way, but in a very assertive way. So, you know, if there's a bus, a car, and a bicycle all aiming for the same piece of road space, it doesn't really matter who has right of way. It's more who gets there first. And so I, I really, uh, I set about wanting something to improve my personal safety. And so I looked around and I saw that uh, a lot of cars were starting to get daylight visible running lights at that stage. And I researched as to why that was. And it was actually uh, European legislation that came in in 2011. Um, and the research suggested that having daylight visible running lights in cars reduced collisions between cars by between about 5 and 10%. And so I figured, well, if something as big as a car needs daylight visible running lights to be seen during the day, then surely I would benefit from that as a cyclist as well. And so um, obviously in Singapore, it's very bright. It's near the equator. Um, I started out with very bright lights. I used mountain bike style lights that are designed to, um, you know, flood the, the road in front of you. Um, and they were visible in the daytime. Um, and it was great. It gave me a 
sense of security. I felt that people were giving me more space and and seeing me better as a cyclist. Um, but the challenge was, of course, that you know these these lights are big, they're expensive, they've got external batteries and cables, and you don't want to leave them on your bike because even in a, a low crime area like Singapore, there's still a risk that they'll be stolen. And you don't really want to take them with you because they're big and heavy and you've got cables and wires and connectors and things to take on and off the bike. And so I was cycling along one day thinking about this and I thought about the, the smartphone that was in my pocket. And I thought, well, it knows a bit about my cycling journey, about where I'm going, how I'm interacting with the environment. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if we took the smart sensor technology more commonly found in the mobile phone and we integrate that into the bicycle light so we can give it a level of situational awareness so it knows when I'm at a roundabout, a road junction, filtering in traffic, and it can flash brighter and faster um, in those scenarios when I know that a lot of cyclists are missed by other road users flash more conservatively when I'm not one of those high risk situations, then we can use less energy overall and we can shrink it down and make it smaller, more convenient, you know, a rechargeable, uh, you know, light that's very easy to put in your pocket. It can be, you know, cheaper and better. And so um, the company I worked at had a, had a global uh, cycling forum and I posted on there and said, hey guys, you know, I'm, I'm a commuter cyclist. I, I loved it as a child, but I'm only recently getting back into cycling. And what do you think of this idea I have? You know, you think it, it's, a, it's a good idea. I'm going to do this as a, as a personal project for me. Um, but what do you guys think? And over the course of the next two days, I got more than 100 replies that basically said, yeah, you, you've definitely got something there. And if you make one, can you make one for me as well? And so that was really the, the, the point at which we decided, yeah, there's something here. You know, we'd, we'd, uh, Irene and I had always wanted to, um, to start our own business to see um, if we could do something and, and you know, this was the, the perfect opportunity that came together of it had all the right ingredients of being, you know, good for the environment, good for people. Um, and we, we really wanted to try it. So we pulled the plug in Singapore mm. um, and, and set up CSANS. Were you excited off the bat, Irene, or was it a bit like, oh, oh bike light <laughs> sounds good, but. Well, yeah, I mean, I have like to you say said, like. Quitting a job is a massive, a massive piece. And obviously that doesn't happen overnight, but the process yeah. to that, was it, was it a like, oh, yep, this is, this sounds great. Let's go at it. Or was there a bit of time of um, easing into the idea? Well, we did do a bit of research. As Philip said, he had the forum at work. We started to sort of look around and do a bit more research and sort of try to see what else was out there, what the size of the market is, did a little bit of due diligence and a survey that we actually sent out to, to friends of friends. So we actually had ended up with hundreds of people that we just kind of surveyed and we started to get a bit more confidence that there could be something in it. Um, but it was kind of a, a little bit of timing was right as well. We um, had had my second child. I used to work as a management consultant for a big firm and I felt that in didn't really want to go back and do the sort of hours that I was doing in that job. And so I kind of thought this is this something we could give it, give it a try for a couple of years. Mm. <laughs> it's 10 years later and we're still doing it. But at the time it was like, well, we'll give it a go. The children are young. And the worst thing that can happen is it doesn't work and, and I'll go back to my, my, my you know, day job kind of thing. And I've at least had um, a bit of, you know, time with Philip and the children when they're very young. Um, that was a kind of thinking. So yeah, there was a, a definitely a risk to take, but it was also a, a kind of a, a, a well thought through risk and and one that we you know were prepared to do at the time. For 
And I, and I love that trend of data that's flown through from your initial surveys on your forum to your family and friends to now that bigger data piece of the actual impact that the like could particularly have. What what were you guys? What was the initial the initial research that you guys were looking at the data that you like we could really hone in on that idea because I think your initial point feel about like everyone. Um, users or a lot of people use cycling for commuting it's a, such an easy way of exercise but there is that element of danger there is that element of um it's, there is risk on the table so if we, if we could work together to pull something and have hard data especially in australia a nation that isn't sometimes that friendly towards cyclists uh in the common view i think that could be a powerful thing but yeah talk to me about that data that initial piece that you were looking at that excited you um, it was really when we began to test the sensors uh, with cyclists and we started to see uh, patterns in the data that we hadn't expected. So we were able, we, I guess, being from a non-sporting or non-cyclist specialist background, um, we made a few assumptions. So we thought that as you accelerate away from a stop, for example, that it would be a linear acceleration. You'd go from zero to 15-ish miles an hour, 25 kilometers an hour in a reasonably smooth way. Um, allowing for air resistance and a few other things. But of course, what we discovered is that as you're cycling along and you're, you know, you, with your pedal stroke, at different points in your pedal stroke, you're using different muscle grips in your legs and they're physically different sizes. So they produce different acceleration surges or pulses. So it's much more of a, a sequence of waves um, that it is, uh, you know, linear acceleration. Um, and so, um, and that surprised us. And then we thought, well, what else can we find in this data? And we started to be able to see, you know, people's left-right counterbalance um, as they were cycling. Um, if people were using one leg more than the other, um, we started to notice that we could measure and understand the road surface and what they were cycling over, which led to sort of discoveries about uh, road positioning and where they were. Um, as we started to sort of build up more complex models about how they were approaching junctions and roundabouts in order to get the light to react better to its environment. Um, and that ultimately sort of led to elements of things like braking and swerving and understanding what constitutes, you know, normal behavior as you approach a junction versus what constitutes abnormal behavior when something has shocked or surprised you. Perhaps a pedestrian has stepped out when you weren't expecting it or you've spotted a, a pothole or a, a road surface defect at the last second. And so we started to, to really sort of understand all these really interesting insights. And then by gathering them and aggregating them, that's where we were able to work with uh, organizations like ROSPA. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess from the data point of view, the difference about CSANS is that there are dedicated sensors inside the light. So they're actually taking in data 800 times per second. Um, and this is, this is the clever part of what Philip has done is to then make sense of the data that comes in. And there's a wide range of variables that it's looking at, things like the road surface condition, so how rough or smooth it is, if there's swerving, braking, orientation of the cyclist, a whole load of factors come in. And originally it was actually in order to make the light flash and react in those riskier situations. But then we realized, hey, you know, actually this data could be really useful for cities. Um, because what if we could, you know, if we are understanding where these patterns are of a swerve or a break for an individual cyclist, what happens if you aggregate up all of that data um, over, over the network of cyclists and then you can start to see those patterns, you know, so where is it that a junction is dangerous 
you know, or, you know, where is it that cyclists are experiencing that conflict? Um, and then that could be then used by a city to, to get better insight into those hazards and, and hopefully then, you know, use that to um, inform their, you know, design or maintenance of cycle infrastructure. So, yeah, there was the, there was a the kind of a penny drop of going, oh, wow, Philip has invented this really clever bike light which reacts to the environment and does all this cool stuff to, oh, what if we could actually, you know, use all that data then in another way as another use case. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the next stage was really to get the, the data off the light because the first product was not a connected product. It was the light was just reacting like that. So that was the, really the start of the journey then to go into a, into a connected product where we, we could, uh, which allow us to send the data from the bike light to the phone and up into the cloud where we can aggregate that data and start to sort of, you know, analyze it. Um, so yeah, there's, there's been a journey since then, the very first Kickstarter back in 2013 to um, a couple of others as we've evolved the product to um, start to do start to be able to extract that data. Um, so is how hard is it to pull a light together? And as, I guess from scratch from you guys, not um, coming from a manufacturing perspective, yeah. how hard is it to pull a light together with that many sensors in it? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I'm fortunate that my background, I have a degree in electronic and software engineering. Um, and my first job was integrating uh, MODES radar for aircraft into air traffic control simulators. So I, I sort of knew how to pull together uh, the sensors and a lot of the stuff that I'd studied that was cutting edge at university, um, you know, a number of years before, was now becoming very mainstream and very available. Um, there was a lot of kind of maker movement going on with, um, you know, Raspberry Pis and things like that. And a lot of the electronic manufacturers were providing much better um, and more accessible, understandable data sheets than had ever been available before. So there'd never been a better time to pull together a, a, a sensor-laden device. Um, where the challenges lay for us were really the, the other components to go around it. So I could create the electronics board, write the firmware to go on and understand the data that was coming from it and how to make it react and do what we wanted. But, you know, how do we put a waterproof casing around that? Um, how do we get a box? Where do, where do we get a barcode from? Um, it was all those sorts of questions that we really didn't know. And I think as well, you know, understanding about scaling and manufacturing and, and that sort of stuff was a big challenge as well. You know, our first production run was a few thousand lights. And I remember ordering a few thousand batteries from the supplier. Um, and as I clicked send on the email, I sort of thought to myself, what does a few thousand batteries look like? Is it, is it a box? Is it, you know, the boot of a car? Is it a van? Is it a lorry? Is it an articulated lorry? I just had no concept of what that would look like. So I had to do a very quick calculation of, you know, volume and multiply it up and discover that, you know, it was going to fit in my garage when it arrived uh, a couple of weeks later. <laughs> And from a data perspective moving forward, so you've obviously got this started off with a smaller product, um, just thinking more about the the direct customer as as the beneficiary of the data. And then it's gone to this bigger scale of, of the com wider community and commuters as a whole. How, how have you gone about kind of getting that data on scale and getting enough people on there and then pulling that together for a, a bigger client, like a, a government or a council? One thing that we did was um, 
in I think it was back in 2017, we pitched in for a small business innovation research sort of challenge that Dublin City Council put out. And they said, hey, we want to encourage more people to cycle, send us your best ideas. There's a very small pot of money to um, test out an idea. I don't know if they do things like that in Melbourne, but they they ran a competition essentially and, and startups um, applied and we were one of the winners of that. And that, that actually allowed us to do a closed data trial. So what, the, what we did in Dublin was we said, okay, we, we know people like using our bike light, but what we need to find out are three things. One is how do cyclists feel about sharing data? So will they be happy to, you know, know that their data will, go, will be shared back? And the second thing was um, how do we just from a tech point of view, from an architecture point of view, handle this sheer volume of data, you know, 800, you know, seconds, 800 readings per second, how do we, how do we just process and, and handle this large volume of data? And then the last thing we wanted to test out was, um, what are the use cases for the city? So how would the city actually use the data? I mean, we're not transport planners, so we needed to sort of understand and meet transport planners and 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 talk with them and understand how they would want to use the data and how we could collaborate with them. Um, so that was great. So, so Dublin actually allowed us the opportunity to do this first closed data trial. And it was just before GDPR came in as well here in, in Europe, which is around the, the new data privacy laws, which was great because we got to work with, you know, the best pri data privacy experts that they had, you know, in the council um, to kind of partner with them and make sure that what we shaped and did was, you know, um, in... Uh, lined up with what we knew was coming, you know, the following year that we would be compliant. So it really gave us a good way to sort of test out lots of this stuff in a, in a safe way. So I say safe, but it was quite brave. We had 500 cyclists um, in Dublin. Um, and, and then funnily enough, we won another competition as well in Manchester a few weeks later. So we ended up running two closed data trials, one in Manchester and one in Dublin. So we had about 180 cyclists in, in Manchester. Um, and both of those projects were great because what it, what it taught us was that, A, was cyclists were really happy to share their data. Um, as long as we make it clear about why, what the purpose is, you know, that we're, we're collecting the data for and that people understand that we're not sharing their individual journeys. It's about aggregated depersonalised data, which is actually only really useful where you have got this crowd's, you know, crowdsourced area where you're looking at swerving and breaking patterns and things like that. So we had, like, we were completely oversubscribed for both of the, the projects. We just had um, many, many more people apply than we had lights. Um, and then the second thing we wanted to test out was the, as I said, the data, just sort of the back end, and you got some good hmm. learnings out of that. But I think that the key thing was really this co-creation element with the city really understanding how the city can use the data and what their pain points are and how to sort of evolve what we are doing. Um, I would say a really key learning was at first, our very first project, we worked so hard on those elements of getting all the data. We literally handed the data over in a file and said, here you go, here's the data. Can you please go away and transform your city? <laughs> um, Fix it now. Yeah, okay. we've learned a lot since then. We know now, you know, um, we know like, you know, a very simple thing, but 
being able to visualize the data, you know, now we have a data dashboard and we can visualize the data, which is really engaging for stakeholders, you know, because it, sometimes you're talking to the innovation person on your project, but they have to go back and actually um, pitch this innovation back to the people on the ground that actually are designing the cycle infrastructure. So mm. they need to be brought along in the journey as well and have confidence in the data and, and this sort of thing. So, yeah, it's been a great learning curve. Those two projects allowed us to then go on from there and, and we're now starting to work with a, a number of other cities around the world yeah. as well. Um, Can you share what some of those learnings were? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's been um, there's been quite a few and uh, it's kind of a rabbit hole where, you know, every project we learn something new, um, but we learn two or three new things and we'll have 10 more questions. So it just becomes deeper and deeper and more interesting. So uh, we first did a study in Dublin of, for example, male versus female cyclists. And what we discovered in Dublin was that um, on the, we analyzed the same routes, so the same roads, um, and we had different, ex different experiences in terms of road quality um, for female cyclists versus male cyclists. And our devices already compensate for things like, you know, tire size and width and pressure and bicycle frame material and all those sorts of things. And so it didn't make any sense to us until we really looked at, well, what, what is the limb positioning of those cyclists? And what we discovered is that female cyclists were tending to travel a little bit closer to the curb. Um, and that's where the road deterioration tends to happen because uh, the water is designed to flow off to the edge. Um, and then the hydraulic action of the car tires is where the road will start to break up and become rougher. Um, and that's where the female cyclists were tending to ride, whereas the male cyclists tended to be a little bit further out and perhaps a little bit more confident. It did make us wreck our brains at first because it was like, okay, this is disaggregated data, female, male data. They're both traveling on the same road. How can the road, how can females be experiencing a rougher road on the same road? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so it was like, is there something wrong with the data? And then, you know, I sort of thought, oh, you know what, when I first started cycling and I wasn't that, you know, maybe as confident, I would think if I cycled off into more the gutter, I would um, allow the other cars go past me. And it really wasn't until I got cycle training and realized Oh, actually, sometimes you, you really do need to take up the prime position in the middle of the road, even if it, even if it means you're holding up cars behind you, right? But um, and I, that's the only reason, I, that's, that's what made us think, actually, could this be the reason? Because there's no other reason to sort of explain why, you know, we know that the road is smoother in the middle of the road just because of the way the roads are designed. So it does suggest that, that if women are experiencing a rougher road surface, it must be that on those roads they've, they've cycled in closer to the gutter. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's, re it's really interesting implications, right, for cycle infrastructure design because if you are trying to make your cycle network inclusive um, and to have more women cycling, then it's you know, kind of useful to know where the roads maybe where, where women are, are maybe feeling that they're, they're having to cycle off into the, you know, to the left a bit more. London was the opposite. Mm. Yeah, London was fascinating because uh, when we did the same analysis uh, for Cycling London, we Isn't discovered the city the of London? City of London, yeah. And yeah. We discovered that um, the female cyclists were experiencing better road conditions than the male cyclists. Um, and we looked at why that was, and it was really down to 
their choice of routing. They were traveling um, on average further than the male cyclists um, because they were seeking out the better infrastructure. They were choosing to stay um, on the segregated infrastructure, even if it was less convenient and more of a dog leg. Um, than the male cyclists who tended to just bomb through the middle of uh, whatever it was, taking the most direct path possible. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't surprise me. Yeah. The silly male cyclists just trying to take <laughs> the fastest route possible. And it, so, see, so I guess like there's, there's this piece of data now for the, the cities, the, the councils themselves. Have they, have you seen anything in place, anything actually changed from their perspective yet? Well, still, I mean, there have been some um, impacts, you know, um, in Dublin, for example, they used our data in some consultation that they did um, with the city because they wanted to put in a major sort of cycleway um, and there was this unfortunate sort of thing that they were getting pushback from the people who lived in the street where they wanted to have the cycleway put in, the sort of not-in-my-backyard um, yeah. scenario. And... Um, they had had quite a few testy kind of um, sessions, so this public consultation sessions over this. And, as, you know, you can get this sort of, you know, the, the vocal minority, you know, so, sort of thing that is maybe against it. Um, and, they, and they were sort of racking their brains as to what they could do. And then they realised that data could actually help in the discussion. So where the people were saying, well, they don't need to be building this in my street because cyclists don't come here they're actually able to pull up our data and say, well, you know, we can see that it does make sense. Cyclists are coming through here from an origin destination point of view. This really works in the network. Um, and they're sort of like, well, they'll be really fast coming down our street. They'll knock over pedestrians. And it's like, well, actually, they're not cycling any faster in your street than they are anywhere else. We can see that in the data. And it just really helped, like, close down some of those discussions. And, um, you know, so that that helped the um that helped that cycle lane go through. Now the the um, now Dublin is actually redesigning their um, their network, um, and so we're super proud that CSense data has been commissioned um, to help inform the Greater Dublin um, network design. Um, that's still in process, and so it's still a bit early to point to the final result. But it is really great that. Um, you know, they chose CSense data to be included from the strategic planning point of view of the whole redesign of the network. Mm. And Victoria is so, on the horizon. Victoria is, CSense is coming to Victoria. I yeah. think you talk about, um, like before, about the community aspect that everyone's uh, really wants to get involved and in. like they, they know it's a thing, they, anything they can do to do their bit uh, in terms of sharing data and I know talking to the TAC guys last week, they said they were looking for a thousand people, and in under three days, they had five thousand people sign up for the trial. So I think things are going. That kind of replication of mindset is is pretty clear. It's brilliant. Yeah, what, it's phenomenal. And what what fantastic organisations to be able to work with with, you know, all of the the cutting edge leading stuff that TAC do, um, as well as bringing aboard Deakin University. Um, mm. And thinking about all the different aspects of the data and where we can go, it's a it's a really super exciting project for us and one that we're uh, really looking forward to. And and our biggest project to date, so yeah. the most cyclists, the most data, um, the most advanced in terms of all of our thinking and research, and you know everything that's come before has provided a an mm -hmm. incredible base to to really take this to the next level. Yeah, absolutely. Are you starting are you starting with any data? Is there anything that you're looking at from like um, Melbourne as a whole going? 
all right, let's narrow in on that or this area needs to be worked on. Um, Cause I can give you a few tips. There's a couple of uh, little areas <laughs> on my bike path that could do a little bit of work with. Well, we'd love to have you uh, apply and, and, you know, fingers crossed, you can be uh, one of the 1000 that uh, is selected from the group. Um, you know, local insight is super, super exciting, super uh, important. So um, there's kind of two elements to the data that we collect. There's the data that we measure, and that tells us with absolute certainty, you know, where you've traveled, how you've traveled, what your experience has been like. Um, and then there's the perceptive layer of safety, because ultimately, uh, what makes you decide whether or not you're going to get on a bicycle is your perception of risk, not the actual risk, because cycling is actually, you know, a, a very safe thing to do. Um, and actually, you know, all the studies show that the health benefits from cycling outweigh the risk of accident or serious injury. So you know, you're much likely to live longer as a cyclist than you are to be uh, have your life cut short. So um, you know, we, we're we're super excited. So we get. We get the measure stuff and then we get the perceptive stuff. So you can drop pins um, using our app to say, you know, this is where something that I didn't like happened. Um, so you can do, you know, close passes or, um, you know, you felt that traffic was passing too quickly or there wasn't enough space or, you know, lots of other different things you can highlight there. Or you can suggest where you think things could be improved. So where you think, you know, this would really benefit from some cycle planning, some, or sorry, some cycle parking, some dedicated infrastructure. And then we can marry the two together to understand, you know, where are people perceiving or requesting that changes need to be made? And where are they experiencing breaking and swerving and other characteristics in the data that indicate that there's something there that needs to be improved upon? Is there anything about Melbourne that you look at and go, wow, that's that's different. That's strange. Haven't seen that in any other cities. Um, we well, we haven't started really collecting a lot of data mm. yet. Mm. Uh, we're looking forward to finding those things. There, mm. There's always something that that pops up in cities. Um, you know, in, in London, for example, we find some some really interesting things. We find that the different infrastructure on different bridge crossings. Uh, behaved very differently. So where you had a dedicated cycle lane, it meant less braking and swerving, but it also meant congestion at the far end because um, with a non-segregated piece of infrastructure, the cyclist can fan out um, to the advanced stop line and then more can make it through with each change of traffic light. With a segregated infrastructure, they're restricted in width. So there's fewer get through on each change of the lights. Um, was pretty interesting. Um, we discovered another area where the cyclists were, um, you know, going from one set of traffic lights to a second set of traffic lights. And the timing was such that they tried to race it and tried to get to the next green light. And it almost always went red on them at the last moment. They had to brake suddenly and, and screech to a halt. Um, and so it was super exciting to find that and say, you know, can we just change the timing of that traffic light by 10 seconds? And we could probably increase mm. the throughput of cyclists quite significantly. So there's, mm. there's lots of things that we find that, you know, anecdotally, one or two people might report that. But then in the data, we can show that there's something mm. more significant happening on the ground. And, and the good thing is that because the sensors are in the light, it's a standardised way to compare. So when you, it does make it easy to look at things country by country, city by city, and actually have this baseline to make the comparison. Um, so we'll know if your roads are rougher or smoother, or how cyclists, you know, are cycling there. Maybe are they braking or swerving more? Do they experience more close passes or, you know, reports of close passes and things like this? These things will start to emerge from the data and it will be super interesting. Um, and it will be great to, you know, be working with, you know, 
these these top experts at Deakin University and at TAC to help, you know, they'll be the ones really digging into the data for, for those insights. And we're like incredibly grateful that, you know, we've got their expertise um, and commitment, I think is the really exciting part that they are fully committed to really digging into this data and extracting every ounce of, you know, insight that they can. Um, and this is, to me, um, you know, this is why it's such an exciting project. You know, this is the this is the biggest project we've worked on, but also the one with the biggest commitment to really use the data to its full potential. And that's what gets us super excited. Um, plus, I'm an Australian, so I am super happy <laughs> to have a project like this happening in Australia and bring it bring it to my homeland. <laughs> oh, as a commuter, I'm yeah. excited that it's happening in Melbourne. It's good. Is yeah. is the, what's like, the end goal in terms of where you guys hope to get to is, is it everyone using a C-Sense light? Is there just data flowing for days with cyclists, commuters, <laughs> riders all around the world? Where do, you, where do you guys hope to get to? Yeah, I mean, we'd love to see uh, lots more people use our technology, of course. I mean, um, you know, the, the primary thing that we'd like to see is more people on bikes. Um, you know, we think cycling is just an incredible way of keeping fit. Um, and, you know, it improves your health, your happiness. Um, Reduces it, congestion, pollution, all this stuff. So, yeah. Hmm. But, I mean, I hope, you know, we'll, we'll never get to the point of a C-Sense light on every and every bike, or maybe we will. But um, the, the good thing is that, that the learnings that come from the data will benefit all cyclists, right? Yeah. So, you know, if we can make, if we can get a thousand lights out there, and the learnings from that can actually impact, for example, infrastructure that all cyclists use, then that's exciting, right? Um, mm. And that, that's, you know, that's what makes us passionate about, you know, having an impact, making some change, getting that change on the ground that, um, that everybody can experience is, is really good. Um, and, and the next step as well is we are looking at, well, we are, we have started to as well integrate our technology. Um, we're, we're working with um, like bike fleet operators now so they can integrate the C-Sense tech. So if you have, you know, uh, fleets of bikes, you can be gathering data this way as well um, as the consumer product. We can, we can start to build into bikes, cargo bikes, um, and also even e-scooters as well. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for your time. Congratulations on what you achieved. We uh, at the Stanley Street Social, and our listeners are very excited about what uh, we can potentially get out of this TAC collaboration. And uh, we look forward to hearing about the data. Great. great. Thanks again, Alex. Appreciate yeah. your time today. Yeah, great to meet you. And thank you so much for your interest and support. And um, yeah, we, we, we're excited to see um, the results that come out and, and um, see how things can impact and, and change on the ground. Fantastic. Thank you very much.